I'm Megan McGill. And I'm Daniel Chiu Castillo. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional and unceded territory of the Ganyangahaga, on the land known as Teotiage. We recognize the Ganyangahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. All right. Hey, Danielle. How's it going? Hey, it's going good. Uh, finally, the end of the semester and grades are done <laughs> and Yay. ready to enjoy the scorching sun of Montreal. Yeah, it's like warm all of a sudden. We're supposed to get like almost to 30 degrees. <laughs> I don't know, my dad calls me or texts me every day and is like, so it's nice out there today or so it's raining. So I always have like... <laughs> weather schedule in advance <laughs> it's supposed to be warm this week oh so it's supposed to be warm nice yeah yeah <laughs> you've been told in advance that's i've good. been told yeah and to plan accordingly very well yeah <laughs> for my dad who lives across the country um <laughs> yeah me and me and nico have been enjoying some really nice walks now that it's finally feels like spring you know like mm. the last of the last of the mud seems fingers crossed to be gone because he <laughs> Nico is my dog I don't know if I've ever talked about Nico on the podcast he's my dog and he will lay down in like any water like if it's water he'll lay in it and that includes mud so the other day we went to the park and he came out looking black <laughs> fully black <laughs> Oof, must have been really yeah. fun to clean him <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> mud everywhere. <laughs> on nice. the walls, on the doors. <laughs> it was, yeah, <laughs> that's springtime in our house. <laughs> well, uh, not to take a hard left turn, but uh, <laughs> what I know we both know what we're talking about today, but do you want to introduce our topic for today? I think you could call it a hard right turn. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna edit that one out, but (laughs) that's true, actually. But it is kind of true, it's a hard right turn. Oh, (laughs) well, we'll see if it stays, but, anyways, um, yeah, so maybe unsurprisingly for everyone, um, this week we'll be covering the Roe v. Wade, um, leak. Uh, in the Supreme Court that happened earlier last week. So maybe we're going to have to caveat this one again. Neither Megan nor me are legal experts. So I don't think anyone who's listening to this podcast is looking for legal expertise, but still, at least my understanding of the legal system in the United States is very patchy, but we're doing our best to understand sort of like what are the broad narratives that are brought forward in this instance. In broad terms, what is going on? So early last week, there was a leak of a draft done by Justice Alito Jr. That describes an opinion on why and how uh, Roe v. Wade should be uh, rejected, essentially. There are many sides to this story. One side that we can start with is, for example, that the Supreme Court was supposed to be a very tight lip 
uh, institution that wasn't prone to these kinds of things. And this is kind of the first time that this happens to this scale or something this important. Uh, a document uh, is leaked into, uh, is leaked earlier because obviously these kinds of drafts are not really seen by people uh, outside the Supreme Court until they have been um, submitted. Yeah. Right? So that's one thing. Uh, the narrative that has brought up is this um, worry that the legitimacy and the trust that people put in the Supreme Court is shaky now because it does seem bipartisan. We'll get back to that. And the other angle that I would like us to discuss today eventually is also this um, concern about broad LGBTQ rights uh, because people are worried that same-sex marriage uh, and other rights that are couched with the same uh, logic will also be rejected. And the interesting thing there is that Alito, in the draft at least, really tries to put these two apart and say that the decision regarding abortion will not affect the other ones. Is that a good way to start? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's like a great place to start. Do you want to start with your with your first one? The um like to talk a little bit about the leak itself and like how it's being framed or what that kind of means for the like trust in the institution of the Supreme Court. Cuz I guess like from my perspective, what I was kind of seeing that as is more of a like talk, right wing talking point, right? Like instead of talking about what this decision, if it were to go through, and I think um, people who are more expert in this than me do think it will go through. Um, instead of talking about the implications of what that might mean, they're talking about this, the leak itself and kind of turning this around to be um, to be about that and not about what this draft decision might mean. Though I, I, I do think it's important to also talk about like what the what the leak itself means, you know, but um I I've kind of been seeing that being co-opted a bit by um right wing, like extreme right wing talking points, you know, to 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 shift focus, I think, away from what overturning Roe v. Wade would actually mean. I don't know about you, Danielle. No, I, I've also seen that mostly uh, the Democrats are talking about using this to fuel their or to energize their voting basis, but kind of mm. at the same time condemning the fact that it got leaked. But I, I wanted to bring it up mostly also because the point attached to that is this comment by uh, Justice Sotomayor that one of the concerns is that if this goes through right now, it will be understood by the broader public as being an act mm. of bipartisanship, essentially. Her argument essentially is that it will not reflect sort of a position of good faith in some sense. Yeah. Because it will it will be enacting an a bit of an unspoken conservative agenda. Well, yeah, and I think um, given that those the three justices that Trump was able to install during his presidency 
um, like all said that they would uphold this during their mm-hmm. um, when they did their uh, I can't remember what it's exactly called basically their interview right <laughs> like yeah. they were being <laughs> their job interview <laughs> their job interview that we all saw <laughs> um they all specifically were asked about this and they all specifically said that it was you know precedent that mm-hmm. i mean i guess like if you want to be specific about it they didn't say they would uphold it they said it's precedent <laughs> yeah um but the but the assumption there is you know if it's a 50 year precedent which this is um, that they would uphold it. And, um, obviously that's not the case. And uh, yeah, I think that that is, I, I kind of agree, right? Like that, that does speak to this conservative, like kind of quiet conservative agenda being mm-hmm. pushed through. Like that's how it feels, you know? Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to bring this point of the legitimacy, uh, just in a, in a broad sense, because, uh, well, first of all, the, the idea of that it is an institution that, in theory, mm. sort of stands apart from all the political heat that, that has really... Yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> that's the idea, right? Like, they 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 stand apart from it. Um, that's why this, this whole, like, we're not prone to leaks, we're not prone to this sort of... Mm-hmm. bipartisan mess that happens elsewhere mm-hmm. um and the other one being like well this is where you go at, as a as a last resort sort of right like this is where where cases get settled this is the supreme court so yeah. it cannot or it should not <laughs> be thought of as this a, a bipartisan institution but well, this is exactly what's going on now, as we were saying. Like, it's funny that that is the idea too, though, right? Because they're being installed by presidents who are who are partisan, you know. Right. Like, but the original Roe v. Wade was selected, if I'm not mistaken, by quite a few conservatives, like quite a few yeah. justices that were elected by a conservative by conservative presidents. So yeah, that's... passed with a pretty big majority. Right, seven, seven and two, I believe. Yeah. So that's the, that's the thing, right? And right now, the division that seems to be the case with the draft is that there are five conservatives, the chief justice is undecided, mm. and then the three Democrats are on the other side. <laughs> so yeah. if that's not bipartisan, I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's, I mean, you know, as soon as they had the numbers, they, they're taking advantage, right? Like, it, it does feel like that. It this does feel Very like quickly that. after that last justice was installed. Like, these things don't happen quickly, you know? The court system yeah. in the U.S. does not move quickly. Um, this is extremely quickly. <laughs> exactly. To move something through. Um, the, so that's yeah. sort of the first... Um, the first piece, kind of. The first piece of it, you know, like the the question of how people ideally do not perceive this as a bipartisan issue, at least in terms of the courts. And right now, that's very much in the air. I mean, it's really hard, I think, to 
not argue that there's not a connection between what you just said. Like the last three justices has been installed in one term and mm-hmm. getting the the magical number of five to vote something in the courts in the Supreme Court. So should we should we move to the second the second piece we were gonna talk about? Mm-hmm. What what have you read regarding mm-hmm. this this idea of the separation? at least in Alito's head, or at least in his argumentation, that the right to abortion will not affect the other rights that have been recognized recently for LGBTQ folks. Yeah, so, again, not a legal expert, but um, from my perspective, and given the fact that we saw um, the last three justices say publicly that they would have... that something was precedent, this important thing, Roe v. Wade was precedent, and then moving so swiftly to uh, reverse that 50-year precedent um, on the grounds that it's not uh, steeped basically in the history of of America. Um, I think you could easily, easily make the same argument for, for those other other precedents that were argued on this same kind of privacy, right to privacy, which is what Roe v. Wade was argued on, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm a bit of a pessimist nowadays. There's <laughs> a lot of things to be pessimistic about, um, feels like. But yeah, I I kind of just don't don't see why why not, why they couldn't do that and why why they wouldn't. I, I guess I personally don't understand don't quite understand why abortion is such this like hot button topic for the Republicans in the first place, since, you know, polling shows that a vast majority of Americans support abortion rights. And so maybe those, those aren't as big of issues for them in whatever their kind of like grander plan is here, you know, for the Republican party and for how they're being perceived by doing this so like in that sense maybe they wouldn't move quickly on those other issues but I I don't see why they couldn't I guess based on how I'm understanding the like the way that this works I don't know what about you so the arguments that that Justice Alito seemed to be bringing forth was this idea that it was egregiously wrong because the historical arguments that have been built to say that there was a precedent for abortion mm-hmm. rights, according to him, that's not the case. According to him, there's actually been a, a he, I think he called it like an unbroken chain right. of laws that punish abortion. They were sort of unjustly banned when Roe v. Wade was ruled, which is what we were saying about this whole idea of the historical present. Hmm. And that's where it gets um, a bit difficult because a lot of historians have actually stepped up and said that the reasoning of Roe v. Wade is, is correct because what Alito's draft is saying is a history that is technically correct, but also by omission. The only way in which what he accuses Roe v. Wade of being wrong is if you omit certain things. 
so, such as, for example, that even when some right. of these laws existed, the actual punishments were not dealt at, like, much at all. The number of actual punishments were rather small. Um, and so what it leads us is to Justice Alito's sort of argument that because this is a contentious issue, right, it should not be decided by the court, it should be decided by the elected representatives of the people. Um, it should not have been seized by seven justices and ruled over the land. It should be given back to people. Right. So that's sort of the last, I think, point of discussion there. It's hard, right? Because the the issue of the like of precedent is a tricky one because like do you, I don't know, do we want to be upholding eighteenth century law decisions, you know? Um I don't know. Maybe some people do. <laughs> I I don't. But um, it's like how how far are we taking that the idea of precedent back? Because there's always going to be someone who who rules something differently, right? Like which one is going to be taken and run with, and which one isn't. And we see this in other types of like criminal cases as well. Um, I follow a lot of true crime, so I've seen like an issue of of precedent like be an issue on other kind of criminal cases also. Um, but it's it's complicated, right? Like, I don't. I find this one hard to hard to kind of talk about in, and I don't think we need to be like super neutral, but because I don't agree with it, I, I'm struggling a little bit to to try and think about like what his argument is and and what that what what it could be achieving like legally more specifically as opposed to like what other kinds of impacts it's going to have like kind of mm, I don't really know how to say this I guess it's just a tough it's tough to talk about a little bit because if he's going from like a strictly kind of legal argument, like maybe he has an argument to make there, but it's kind of more of these like net effects that are going to move down the line by moving it into like a state power situation um, that I think are are of the most concern, you know? Yeah, and I think, um, well, what the argument has been for m- most people... Um who support abortion and against this idea that it has to be given back to the legislators uh, of each state is that abortion is a unique right, if you will. Because Mm -hmm. it's a right about a person's decisions over their own body without needing to be subjected to the state. And... In that sense, it has to be, it's an universal human right. And that's what people have been trying to argue in the sense of like, we cannot give this back to, we should not give this back to be up to grabs, essentially, depending on which state you live. Um, And what what government you have in which state at which time, right? Because that could also fluctuate. Right. The other argument that is sort of mind-blowing is the racial component to it, right? 
because people on on the pro side on generally will say that the people that that are most affected by by anti-abortion laws are people who cannot access it so generally people of color and uh, people of low income um just people who who have been marginalized in society by the historical structures that have been set in place and the irony <laughs> not irony but the the really strange thing is that there's a footnote in the in the draft that specifically says that a uh, disproportionate number of of abortions are in the black population and that he's basically saying that this is a good thing so that people can increase their numbers not even kidding like that's kind of the 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 logic on it and the other logic being like to help uh the to help people who are looking to adopt have have more options in a way and in a broader sense it depends who's reading the history and who's mm-hmm. reading the facts it it's so difficult sometimes to to accept that in even in in the court of justice you give a history to someone and they'll read something very differently out of it than what other people would read and so the unfortunate side effect of all that is that it's very likely that Roe v. Wade is going to be uh, rejected. I was actually looking at a very interesting tech talk that we can link in the sources. It was by Catherine Colbert. And she actually predicted that within this year, Roe v. Wade was going to be rejected. And she did that last December. Because that's when the Mississippi one was coming up. And she said, yeah, with five justices, it's good. And so it's a very interesting TED talk because she says, mm-hmm. well, what, how do we deal with it now? How do we go forward in a world where, but when this facet of the battle is very likely lost, how do we um, protect those mm-hmm. rights? And she says that it's about building coalitions and it's about being a, a strong social movement that really works through this uh, understanding that like you said most people agree on some level of abortion like there are very few sort of absolutists on either side of like no abortion at all or abortion in all cases so like even an issue as contentious as this it's actually for the most part full of people that are in some sort of middle ground so I guess a social movement that recognizes that to move forward through that uh, understanding, not so much the the bipartisan one, right? But that's that's the other problem that once Roe v. Wade is ruled out, most people are predicting that it's gonna pretty much look like the electoral map, mm-hmm. and the map that but it has different rules on COVID even like. All the states that are very, very lax and all the states that are very careful about it, all the states that were red and all the states that were blue. It's very likely that the map of where you can get an abortion will map onto the blue ones. Yeah. Which is just another example of of the 
bipartisan times that America's going through. Yeah. Now, do you have anything else you would like to say? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we could we could keep talking about this for a really long time. <laughs> like I think you and I could get into the weeds about this a little bit further. I I don't know. I think we covered covered some good points um together today. But we'll, of course, link our sources that we used on our sources page that you can find in the show notes. And to think more about what what that means in Canada. We'll, we'll see. There's some, there's some articles out there that are talking about that a bit, but it's, it's always hard to know how these sorts of things will impact Canada when we're so closely related. I think we've seen that in many other cases in the last few years of how something happened in the U.S. and how closely it was mirrored later in Canada. The fallacy would be to think that it doesn't affect us, because of course it does. Okay, well, that's it for this week. This episode was produced by me, Daniel Chu Castillo. Music by Justin Kober. Cover art by Sophia Melian. You can find a link to the sources cited in this episode in our show notes as well as on our website. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast. And check out our website, talkingculture.ca, to pitch an idea or to hear more from the McGill Anthro community.